0: Father, thank you for this time now in your word, your living word, and it is your specific word for us today as a community of faith. We trust your spirit will teach. And when your spirit teaches, it is not for information, it is always for transformation, it is always for life change, to be more like Jesus. And so grant a few of us, even in this room now, the courage to share in a few moments, to speak, to teach, and encourage all of us in how you are at work. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let me ask you a question. What do you think is, there's no right or wrong on this, so don't be afraid to, say, to yell out, but what do you think is the most repeated command? in the Bible, the command that God commands over and over and over, most often, throughout the whole Bible, what, what might that be? Yell out a few that it could be. Do not fear, what else? Don't forget, yeah, remember, do not fear, don't forget. You know, uh, do not fear is the one that generally comes to our minds, and oftentimes it comes there because you'll read, you'll read a blog or you'll read a book and someone will say, you know that the Bible says do not fear 365 times? There's a do not fear. Um, the Bible says do not fear or be not afraid. It says it a lot. But I do want to say this. It doesn't say it 365 times. So that's a myth buster we're going to bust right there. Although it's repeated, it's repeated a lot. The, the, that's the one I've always thought of. But the fact is, is that the most repeated command in the Bible, and if God's commanding it, then we know that this is what God desires. This is God, God commands what he desires and longs for. The most repeated command in the Bible is, is not do not fear, it's actually be happy, rejoice, be glad. You take, take those together and it's, it, that's repeated way more often than do not fear. In other words, I would say this, God's great desire, and this is absolutely consistent through the Bible, is our joy. It, it's not inappropriate for me to say to you, God wants us to be happy. When we understand happy as joy and biblical joy, not the not the, you know, the the happiness that rises and falls with circumstances, but joy. Be joyful. Rejoice. Be glad. This is, this is what God longs for for you and for me. So In a book like Ecclesiastes, which has been really brutal in places, is it not? It's a a raw look at life. We might think it would be absent, but it's absolutely not. I wanna remind you, chapter three, verses 12 and 13, he writes, I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice, rejoice. 322, I have seen that nothing is better that man should be happy. 714, in the day of prosperity, be happy. 8.15, 8.15, there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat, drink, and be merry, be happy, rejoice. Nine seven. go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Verse nine, enjoy life with the woman you love. 10.8, indeed if a man should live many years, let him rejoice. And just two weeks ago, 10.9, rejoice young man. And during your childhood, let your heart be pleasant. Literally in the Hebrew, let your heart be merry. Let your heart be glad. Let your heart be happy. Now we know the preacher's not uh, endorsing a, you know, don't worry, be happy attitude because this is a book of realism and life in a fallen world. But what the preacher is saying is that even under the sun, okay, in our life on this planet and the time we have, in the brokenness of a fallen world and broken bodies, he says,
1: rejoice,
0: be glad. Of course, the question we ask, well, how? And he actually answers it. Right here as we land the plane, if some parts of Ecclesiastes has, have been confusing to you as to me, a bit foggy, y'all, this rings with crystal clear clarity. Now we're in nine to 14 and it's got three parts. I'm gonna hit the first one really fast, but three parts to it. The first will be nine and 10, which is the preacher's qualifications. Then there's the preacher's warning, 11 and 12. And then there's the preacher's conclusion. I'm gonna repeat that as I do them. So nine and 10, we begin with the preacher's qualifications. Now, last week, Mike Vogt did a fantastic job taking us from verse one to eight, which is that it's, it's these amazing pictures of aging. That, you know, you can't, as you age, you can't do what you could do when you were young. Now, I just want to say this. He did a fantastic job. I hope you watch it, but I'm going to give you a warning. I often, not often, because it's not often, but sometimes I will get my hand slapped uh, by some, some of you or others because I will say something and, and I really will say something that kind of gets over the line or I'll, I might have an illustration that is that, well, on the edge of inappropriate that I'm trying to make and that, I do do that but I really, I believe this now. I believe you need to put that on Mike vote now because <laughs> that picture he showed of the guy with the hair on his back was wrong. And then he talked about his own. I would never do that. You know, talking about hair on your back that you could braid or something, that was sick. So anyways, (laughs) that was Mike's message last week. And now we wrap up the book after, you know, life is fleeting. So here's the bottom line. The preacher's qualifications, verses nine and 10. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. I want you to note here, Rob mentioned this in the introduction back in May, that we've gone to the third person here, okay? We ought to pay attention to the words we're reading. He's gone to third person. He's now describing the preacher. Who's he? Well, the book begins chapter one, verses one through 11 in the third person describing uh, the, the preacher. And then the book ends in the third person. And it's like a, there's a narrator that starts the book and a narrator that ends it. Now, why this is important is Rob and I have not camped on it a lot, but we've said to you, you know, it's we can't definitively say Solomon himself wrote these words. We, we can't with integrity. But we can say these are his words because it seems that there was a narrator who personified Solomon, who knew, Solomon, knew him well, and, and personified the wisdom of Solomon. But we note, you know, we gotta do something with this third person in the beginning and this third person in the end. And so Rob and I would say that there is a, a narrator who, who put the work, assembled the work Together. So that's well, the, the first thing, quite frankly. I, I just want you to see a ghostwriter who captures it. Now, unlike books in our day, which have the endorsements on the front cover and the front pages, they put their endorsements on the back in ancient texts. And that's all he's doing here. The narrator is just going, Let me tell you about the author. He was qualified. Let me tell you about what he did. And really, it's caught in those verbs. He taught he pondered, he searched out, he arranged, he found delightful words, he recorded those words truthfully. Really, really simply, he was very thorough. And he, like an author, was very careful with the words he chose and he chose words that would be remembered. And one quick illustration of that. Do you know that the passage in chapter three, there is a time for? Do you know that scholars around the world consider those words to be some of the finest words ever written by a human being. Not Bible scholars, y'all, literary scholars. Solomon was really careful in choosing his words. So qualifications to the warning. Look at 11 and 12, the words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. Here's the warning. The writing of many books is endless. An excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Uh, it's one, again, students love to pull this one out on mom and dad. You know, this says here that books will wear you out, mom. I don't know that I need to stand it. Well, he's not saying that. What he's saying is there are a lot of books out there that try to answer the books that Solomon, the questions that Solomon had asked. Who am I? Why am I here? Where is it all going? What's the purpose of this life on this planet? A lot of books out there, and you and I know this today. There are a lot of books out there that try to answer that question. And Solomon says, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. Um, this book is sufficient to answer those questions. And no other book is. It's more about the sufficiency of the word of God. It's not against Christian books, it's not like don't write any more Christian books. We got, no, if you're reading a Christian book and it's rooted in scripture, it's fantastic. That's, help, that's teaching you. I had a friend text me last week and he just said, "Hey." I've got a bunch of people I'm working with that are getting into this particular book and, and I looked at it and I just have some red flags you know anything about it. I had never heard of the book. So this week, I, I just did a little research on it and I, went, I wrote him back and I said, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. I don't care what people say about that book, that it's the secret answer to prayer and it's this. I go, no, it's not. It's, so, so you gotta be aware. And he's saying, I'm warning you. This book is sufficient, uh, it says, uh, it describes this wor- these words in two really fascinating ways to me. He says they're goads. That, that's the first thing I want you to note is he says, these things are like goads. And by the way, when it says they're given by one shepherd, most, most scholars believe it. they're given by God. There's some other views on that, but I, I'm gonna take that. that, that the preacher's saying these, these words are given by God. And then he says, these words are like goads. Well, what, what's, a, what's a goad? It says, A goad would be a stick that's probably, it could be six, I'm six foot, six to eight feet long. And it's pointed on the end. And you know, in in ancient cultures, and even today in some cultures, you know, uh, a a cattle herder would take the goad and and literally poke the livestock. I mean, and you know, cows have thick skin, you know, but he would poke the livestock. Now here's the key to, to remember on this poke the livestock so that it goes where the shepherd wants it to go, not where the animal wants to go. You with me on that? I don't even have to make the connection, do I? Right? So, secondly, he says they're like well-driven nails. Um, This idea of well-driven nails, we find two places in the scripture where where that phrase is used of people who nailed down their wooden idols so they wouldn't fall over if there was an earthquake or the wind blew. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so nail down your, your idol so the idol doesn't totter over. You, know, you, don't want, you don't want your God falling over. And so take those two things. He says, okay, these, the, the, these words are like goads like a pointed stick that, that pokes you, that inflicts some measure of pain. And those who respond to the goading, okay, they become like well-planted nails. So there's a sense of these words of God inflict enough pain, literally pain. It, that hurt. Yeah, yeah, it does. But enough pain. Pain to move us where God wants us going. And when we're responsive to the word, we find ourselves in places where we are so secure that the storms of life don't knock us over. So it's that, it's that balance between God moving us and God stabilizing us. It's a beautiful picture. You know, the Hurricane that just went through the Carolinas. You know, when, when you ever see pictures of hurricanes in the aftermath, you see the shoreline, generally you see these, you know, these piers that go out several hundred feet into the ocean. And after the hurricane comes through, what's left of the piers? What's the only thing standing? It's the pylons. You know, it's that I, why didn't the pylons get blown away? Because they are well driven nails. I mean, they pound those things into the bottom of the ocean there, and that's why they're still standing. And that's the idea of those who allow the word of God to goad them, appropriately goad them, will find themselves well driven in the truth, unmovable when the storm, when the hurricane comes. I had a, a colleague of mine came to me this week with uh, to to offer me a very gentle confrontation that I had uh, been in a meeting and said something that was difficult for them and uh, and and it could have hurt and you know it was just troubling them and this happened several weeks ago and um, they came came to my office to offer that to me and what I want to say is they you know they offered that to me we were able to talk about it it was a gift to me it was a gift. But what was interesting to me and to this person is that you know it, it bothered them for weeks. But you know how it is. You go, I don't know, do I, do I say something? Do I not? Maybe it's just me. But, but the, I really believe what happens is the Spirit uses the word in your life and mine and won't let it go. And when the Spirit is doing that, I believe it's, He's goading us. And you pay attention to that. It's even like if you're reading your Bible in a daily reading. Let me tell you something, what you're reading's never accidental. You may think it is, it's not. You're just kind of going, look, this is what I do. I read this far even my Bible every day. Fantastic, and God is so sovereign, He'll put you on what you need on the day you need it. And so when you read it and you say to yourself, oh my goodness, that's, that's addressing the very thing I gotta do today, or that's this relationship, or that, ow. Ow! <laughs> That's the word of God goading us. In truth, be warned—they're like goads, like well-driven nails. Um. He goes on to say, "When I, well, when I want to say, when you, when when you think of the, the word of God as um, as painful, we don't like to think of it like that often, do we? I mean, it is a comfort, absolutely." But make no mistake, the truths of God's scripture at times hurt. It's a good hurt. And will put us in situations that are difficult and trying. And Paul affirms this, writing to the New Testament church in Corinth, he said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. That's where the word of God will take us to shape Christ in us. Let me move on. The preacher's qualifications, his warning, and then the conclusion. Here's how he concludes the book. The conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Notice first, the narrator does not write, when all has been said, he didn't say that. What does he say? When all has been heard, and do you know the Hebrew word there is shema, shema. And you remember back in June we talked about this word that in the Hebrew language there's no word for obey, that word is shema. Well I thought you said it was listen, it is. Well then how, but is it obey or is it listen? Is it listen, it it is, it is, yes, yes. To shema is to hear and to hear is to obey, right? You can't separate those two. And so he says to those who have It's not just that people, you know, I've said everything I need to say. The question is, have you heard? And responded in faith. Now, the conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments. This is not the first time we've read fear God. This has been a theme through the book. 314, God has so worked that men should fear him. 5-7, for in many dreams and many words there's emptiness, fear God. 8.12, it'll be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. 8.13, it will not be well for the evil man because he does not fear God. Well, what does it mean to fear God? Rob and I have offered you a few statements because I don't know that you can grab one statement and go, that's all of it. No, you got, it, it, it's very, it's like a diamond that's got many orbs and facets to it. And so we've given you these over time. I'm going to put them up on the slide so you can see them. We've defined the fear of God as a wholesome dread of displeasing God, that juxtaposition of wholesome and dread. You go, those don't go together. Yeah, it's kind of odd how they do, but it is a good dread of displeasing a holy God. It's a holy awe of God as he's revealed in the scripture, you stand back and go, that's God. It's a humble awareness that to hear is to obey, that, that that when I hear God is to obey God, and I'm humbled by that. I'm aware of that. It's a hope-filled faith in Jesus who died and rose to make all things new. And verse 14 is going to add something to it, and we're just going to add a number five onto this. It is a heart stopping. Realization that nothing remains hidden from judgment. This is to fear God, is to have your heart stop. (sighs) Nothing is hidden from his judgment. Nothing, no thought, no attitude, no word, no dastardly deed, no deed that you should have done and didn't. Nothing is hidden from the judgment of God. And in that sense, we step back and we go. Now, what these five traits we believe produce in one who knows God and fears God is not a cowering. You gotta contrast this. Remember, here's, for, for Adam and Eve, when they sinned, you know, what, what happened to them was they were hiding. It's like you're going, I hope he doesn't see me. Where are you, Adam? You know, it's, they're hiding, it's shame. That's not the fear of God. I mean, they were, they were guilty. We've gotta keep in mind where we are in, in redemptive history and if, if this is Genesis and the end over there is Revelation and this is the cross, okay, Jesus came and died, then you gotta understand we, we, you and I are living on this side of the cross. And so you and I look back upon the cross and we recognize that on that cross, Jesus Christ died the death we deserved. So every wrong thought we've ever had, every attitude that was sin, every act that we've done that was sin, every time we could have done the right thing and we didn't do the right thing, there's every sin personal and hidden and public for the world to see, Jesus Christ bore the penalty on the cross for us and he died the death we deserved. And he was buried, and yet he rose three days later because he had no sin of his own. So he could rise, death can't hold an innocent man. He rose and he said, now, anyone who believes that what I've done, the perfect life I've lived, the death, the substitutionary death I've died, anyone who believes that by faith I did it for you, your sins are forgiven. For in faith, you see, we're connected to his death on the cross and we died with him. The wrath of God was poured out on all of our sin. And Jesus says, and you are now clothed in my righteousness. A righteousness, y'all, a human being can't achieve it. And we get it declared righteous by faith. So while it remains true that nothing will be hidden from God's judgment. I'm telling you, because we are in Christ Jesus, as Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My sins hidden, yours hidden that no one knows, public that people know, listen, It's all been paid for in Christ. Therefore, the fear of God for the Christian, for the believer, remains these five things. This is what it is. Now I go, I don't want to displease this God who loved me so much He sent his son to die on the cross for my sin, to do what I could never do for myself. I don't wanna wanna displease him. It's a holy awe of a love so great that we can barely grasp it. It's a humble awareness that this God, the only God, the God Almighty, when he speaks, he spoke the world into being, and therefore when he speaks to me, I get to obey. Not I have to, I get to obey. I'm so thankful that he even speaks to me, to give me direction. It's a hope-filled faith in Christ who died and rose again to make this life possible, and it is a heart-stopping realization that nothing remains hidden from his judgment. I'm no longer afraid of the judgment, but I am absolutely aware that this is the God with whom I have to deal with, and therefore, understand, to fear God and obey his commandments, our obedience as christians is if you've got if your faith is in christ it is never ever to be acceptable to god no you're acceptable in christ and therefore all of our obedience i'm going to I'm gonna obey you, God. It is a, it is actually an act of gratitude. It is a step of faith that says, God, you did that for me. I'm gladly obeying what you want me to do. I, you see, this is the change of heart. It doesn't happen overnight, and then you kinda go backwards and forwards, trust me on this, but I begin to want what God wants. On the other side of the cross, I didn't at all. But now that the Spirit lives in me, I, I want what God wants. And that happens and deepens over time. Obedience, obedience is not in order to be acceptable to God. No, because you could never be. Obedience is a, it's, not, it's like a, we, we get to obey this amazing God who loves us. So I started by saying God's greatest desire for you and I is our joy. It's our gladness, what he wants. What does that have to do with the fear of God? Because that remains, how do you take joy and overlay it with the fear of God? I think Oswald Chambers gets very close to the answer when he says this, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 112, how? How? Blessed is the man who fears God. He will never be shaken. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, well-driven nails, trusting in the Lord. Listen, when all has been heard, here's Ecclesiastes in a phrase, fear God and you will fear nothing else. And you see, the fear of God actually becomes, you all, the basis and the ground for our joy. Because you no longer fear tomorrow. You no longer fear, am I gonna have enough? You no longer fear people and what they think. You no longer fear anything but the God who loves you, who sent his only son to die on the cross for you. That's the reverent fear of God. And boy, when we lock onto that by God's grace and his spirit, the fear of man ebbs away. It begins to ebb away. And I'll tell you, when the fear of man ebbs away and the fear of tomorrow begins to ebb away, you know what you have? Joy in the moment, in every moment. Okay, on one of these screens, I'm gonna have those five statements about the fear of God, just leave that up there, but on the other screen, I'm actually gonna put some sharing prompts. And when I say sharing prompts, it's just some words that you could use if you feel so led to share with the rest of us Uh, how God has changed you through our study of Ecclesiastes. Um, I've got a mic, we've got a mic on that row, and we've got a mic over here on this row. And I'm gonna hand the microphone to you and uh, I'm gonna ask you to introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Lloyd. Um, Here are some ways God's words in Ecclesiastes have been like well-driven nails for me. You don't have to use those exact words, you can just stand up and say, here's how God changed me. Uh, I'd, I want to I invite you to be brief so that others can share. I assure you, this is 100% biblical. You know, in a larger church like this, sometimes people, it, it's, it's awkward, and it is a little bit awkward. If we were in my living room, you know, if we were in my living room, I'd have no problem just turning around and saying, hey y'all, let's share a little bit about how the book of Ecclesiastes has changed us. Well, everybody's in my living room right now, and we're just talking this way as a family. So, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand, Um, we're going to share and then we're going to conclude with a responsive song. Um, With that, I'm going to shut up and let you speak. Uh, If you want to share, I just want you to raise your hand and tell us how this book has changed or is changing you. Yourself
2: Good. My name is Angela, and my heart is pounding. Sure. God has used um, the study of Ecclesiastes to affirm what He's been telling me for about the last five years, and that is that it's more important to obey than it is to try to appear sophisticated, mm-hmm. to try to have all the right things try to have my kids in the right places to try to say popular things to try to appeal to a lot of people. Mhm. Because in the end none of that matters. Mm-hmm. All that matters is was I obedient and did I try to lead as many people as I could into the kingdom?
0: Mhm.
2: And much of the time that's not popular. Yeah. And the more you try to obey and please the Lord. Many times, the more unpopular you will become, and the enemy will use that to try to say, you're turning people away. Mm-hmm. It's too, just a little too Jesus-y. Mm.
0: You,
2: know, you just need to tone it down a little bit. But that's not true. Yeah. That's a lie. And I feel like if more people were courageous in trusting God and believing what He says we would be less inclined to be looking around and seeing what other people are thinking Mm -hmm. and saying about Mm -hmm. us. So, obedience, that's the name of the game. Trust and obey, there's a reason why there was the hymn, trust and obey, because that's what it boils down to. Yeah,
0: thank you so much. Thanks for your courage to stand up just now. Y'all, it is not easy to stand up. I I realize that, (laughs) just if you stand up, that's a step of faith in and of itself, but I assure you, what you shared, and what anyone else says in this room, there are others right with you. You are not alone. Joe, you had someone here, and then I'll come over here.
1: All right, here we go. My name is Eric, and Ecclesiastes, Lord, I'm glad you said goad. That was the term from today. Uh, That's exactly what Ecclesiastes has been for me. I'm 28. And this scripture has rooted so deeply in my life that I realized my flesh will get, I mean, just we're in Williamson County, the way I can just get caught up in career, everything else. And a really practical thing that happened naturally was on business trips, I started reading the message version. Uh Uh, God just let me do this on every trip I've ever been on. And then there's a lot of stuff happening, the flow of life, but... I have to be rooted in scripture mm. and particularly reading the message version of Ecclesiastes on a business trip. Like God just showed up and I encourage anybody mm. who wants like a true successful <laughs> yeah. practical use of the scripture, that's it. That's and so good. Uh, life's a lot bigger than me and that's exactly Amen. what God showed me from it. Changed my life. That's
0: a great word, a good reminder. I mean, nothing happens on business trips, does it? No one gets tempted by anything or... Oh, everybody's kind of like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, of course.
3: Um, My name's Kelly, and I think the thing that I've learned in this study that struck me the most was we get to a certain age in our life. I mean, he's 28. I'm 46. So you start to evaluate your life Mm -hmm. and question, am I where I'm supposed to be? I'm supposed to be, you know, I've been a stay-at-home mom for 10 years, 12 years, 12 years. I'm starting to come out of the mommy fog and figure out (laughs) who I am because I'm sleeping and Mm -hmm. all that fun (laughs) stuff now. And you start to feel pressure. Like, I see all these other people my age, women in particular, that never took the break. And they're in places in their life, in their career, that I start to kind of question my decision.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: And... It just made me feel good to know that that longing is not necessarily something that I can fix. Maybe it's not about my career or Mm -hmm. a lack thereof. It's this longing for home that's not Mm -hmm. going to be satisfied until I'm there. And so... Quit focusing on these things here because it's not anything that's permanent or lasting anyway. God wants me to be happy, so pursue it. But just know the longing is still gonna be there and only he can really quench that longing yes. when I'm in his presence on the other side.
0: Amen. A great reminder to God.
1: Hi, my name's Shannon. Um In chapter three, when it talks about how there's a season for everything, there's a time for everything, um, it's so simple, but it's so profound. And lately, I've been through a season of depression, and that's hard, and that's difficult. And I used to, I went through it in high school, and it kind of went away and then came back. And I used to think that, oh, this will never come back. It'll never happen again. I'm good now. But it's not true. That's something that I'm always going to have to fight. It's a battle every day just to wake up and live my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard. Yeah. But there really is a season for everything and a time for everything, and I know God's going to use me in big ways in the future.
0: Yeah. Shannon, thanks for your courage to share that. We have one more, and then um, and, and then we need to move on. My okay. name is Nan Gurley, and um, I found myself every
4: Sunday feeling sorry for Solomon. And uh, glad that I'm not that smart. <laughs> as he was, Um, things are a little simpler for me than they were for him. And I was sad for him that he lived on that side of the cross because the clarity of thinking that I'm able to have, Mm -hmm. I'm able to always look at the cross. Mm. Crazy things happen, unfair things happen, unjust things happen, the evil prosper the good are persecuted. Mm -hmm. But for me, the focus and the clarity for everything, I can always look at the cross and go, God is sovereign and he has no dark side. Mm -mm. He is good. Amen. And that's about as smart as I want to be.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good word, Nan. Thank you. We will, um, we're going to sing some words here in a moment and you're also going to have some time to reflect. And I want to, to, to preview it by simply saying, and Nan actually did this in the sense of um, if Ecclesiastes teaches us anything, it teaches us this is a broken world and uh, we're a broken people. And there is a cross that redeems, but it doesn't redeem, we don't experience the fullness of that redemption until that day. But we can live with joy in this one, even when it all goes terribly wrong because God is just he's good he's holy he loves us and he is in control even even especially even when it seems like